Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is a two-finger reading, so we're going to be starting on page uh, 967 in the Black Pew Bible in 2 Corinthians and chapter 8, and then turning a page and moving on to chapter 9, starting at verse 6. So mark your pages. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The word of the Lord. I'm Ryan Phelps. I serve here as uh, lead pastor. It's really good to be with you this morning. So we've been in a series on generosity, calling gospel generosity. Um, we're finishing that this week. Next week we're into Ephesians again just for a few weeks, and then we're off into the summer. Before we get to our text this morning, our amazing, beautiful text, let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that you have spoken into this universe first by creating this world and then not leaving it when we sinned against you. You remained and you chose to continue to fight for the hearts of your people. And so now we stand in humble awe at these words that you have for us. But not just that, God, we know that we are going to come against this text and we are going to want to confront it with our selfishness, with our idolatry. We are not going to want to hear everything that you have to say this morning. And so by your grace and by your spirit, you must work to soften our hearts. But we know that you love us and that you will. God, be with us this morning. Would you be glorified in all that we do? In Jesus' name, amen. So in the last three weeks, the last three weeks of, the, of this uh, sermon series, we've said three things. I just... I want to remind you of those three things that we've said. Basically, the first thing is that God is the giver of all things. God has generously given to us, as the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, our life and our breath 
and everything. And yet despite this, the second thing is that we said we have a problem with this. We have a problem understanding God as owner, as sustainer, creator of all things, giver of all things. We shirk this, we push it away. And what happens is that we end up having a problem with our money and our possessions. I barely even need to say it, we just know it. We are not at peace with our money. And we are not at peace ultimately because of this ruptured relationship between he and us. We believe that our money and possessions must make us happy, complete, and content. And so we stake everything, all things, on the line to protect what we have and to get more than we have. And in so doing, of course, we dethrone God and we forget that he is the giver of all things. But we ended with a goal last week. We ended with the vision of what God wants, that he wants to remain as the owner as the giver of all things, and he wants us to take up our calling, our task of being, in a sense, his money managers. We are to steward his resources in a way that glorifies him, brings joy to our own hearts, and does amazing things for the world. Whatever he has entrusted with us, that we are to use it radically for his glory and the good of others. So this, this last sermon this morning is going to fill in, in a sense, the last piece where we must finally ask the question, how do we do it? How do we change our habits with money? How do we, as Martin Luther famously said, have our pocketbooks, our checkbooks, our bank accounts saved? How do we stop trusting in money and trust in God? How do we live gladly and radically as his stewards, as money managers? I hope that you will not be surprised this morning to hear that the answer is grace. It is grace. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is a story about a people who understood this so well. It is not a parable. It is a true account from Paul of a people wholly given over to generosity for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their own joy. And Paul is telling it to the Corinthians and now he's telling it to us that we would be encouraged and that we would be motivated. What is amazing is that Paul's intention is not to guilt trip, but to lift our spirits by retelling this account of the Macedonians. His intention is to free us. To free us by seeing what it is like when grace saturates a people. When the the gospel powerfully works inside of a church. And so we're going to go through this relatively comprehensively. To the dismay of my preaching professors, I'm going to give you nine things that I see in this text about generosity. Nine things. They're pretty connected, so there's a flow, so hopefully it's not too confusing. We're going to hold it together. May we go now to him, resting in his word. So the first thing is this, generosity is grounded in God's grace. I hope you have your Bibles open that you can read along with me. 2 Corinthians 8.1 We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So just some very quick background The problem is that the Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea were suffering. For various reasons, there was persecution, famine, despair. 
They were probably losing their jobs. And when that happened, there were no social resources that they could run to. They had to support and care for each other. And so the call is going out. It continues to go out to all the people that others must meet their needs. Churches must come together to bring them food, aid, comfort. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, there is a set of churches in Macedonia that's doing this. They are doing this. They are giving to the Jerusalem church, but in a way and to a degree we did not expect and can barely believe. Now before we go into the Macedonians, we need to focus on the Corinthians, the poor Corinthians. They're always in his sights, and he's looking at them. Why? Why is he telling them this? Why is he telling them about this other church? Well, because the Corinthians were not giving. The Corinthians were not being generous. They were not sending their offerings to Jerusalem. We don't know why exactly. Generally, we know that the Corinthian church, the people in Corinth, the, the, the Christians there, had, a tr- had trouble living out the gospel. They had trouble living in light of the grace of Jesus. So it's not surprising that they would also have trouble with money, with dealing with money well. On the whole, they were probably pretty rich compared to the Macedonians. And yet they were not giving to the degree that Paul thought that they should. And so he comes to them and he says, I want you to know about this church. Be encouraged by it. Be enlivened by it. He doesn't come to them and say, you know what? You are awful people. You are so stingy. What is wrong with you? Why aren't you giving more? You might think Paul would do that with the Corinthians, but he doesn't. He is subtle. He's loving. He's encouraging. And the whole tone of that starts in verse 1. What does it say? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Not you must do this, you are so bad. But look to the grace of God. So on the one hand, he's talking about the Macedonian churches. He's setting them up as an example. A stellar example of what it looks like to live and to give. But he doesn't even just say, I want you to be more like the Macedonians. You know, when we say that to our kids, why can't you be more like Harry? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you need to be more like these churches. No, when he points to them, he says, when you do, when you see them, you will see a people transformed by the grace of God. Verse 1, one more time, hear it closely. We want you to know, brothers, about what? About the grace of God of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What is the grace of God? Their generosity. The grace of God is that they are pouring themselves out for another people. I think what Paul is doing is he's just beginning to set up a new picture for motivation. How will you become givers, the givers that you want to be? How will you become generous in the ways that God has commanded? You will do so, he says, at the outset by looking to God and His grace. By looking to God as the great giver of all things. The words generosity and grace in the New Testament are very closely related. They are nearly synonymous. For God, His generosity is His grace. His grace is His generosity. Out of the overflow of God's heart is to give to us what we do not deserve and could never earn. Friends, everything that we have is the overflow of His grace to us. 
And Paul is saying that has transformed this people. And it has transformed them so much that they now see their generosity as a grace for them. Now we're going to come back to this, but we need to set the stage. Friends, if you want to learn to be generous, if you want to reach a new level of giving, Paul's answer is that we must develop a deep and abiding knowledge of God's grace for us. Generosity is grounded in God's grace. Two, generosity cannot be dependent on how much we do or do not have. Hear that again. Generosity cannot be dependent on how much we do or do not have. 2 Corinthians 8, 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So we are seeing immediately what happens when grace saturates a people. When grace sweeps through a people. Grace had so transformed this people that they now did not give out of the abundance of their wealth. But what does it say? Out of their extreme poverty. Out of their lack of anything. They were under severe tests of affliction. They were extremely poor. The Greek reads something like, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. Now, it would not surprise us then that if Paul said, in light of this, in light of their extreme poverty, these people They held back their offerings. They held back their offerings to save up enough so they made sure that they were okay. That would not surprise us and we would not condemn that. But Paul says, amazes even him. They did the opposite. Even in their extreme poverty, they gave. When they faced the hardest moment of their lives financially, they put their financial hope in the Lord. Now, I just want to learn one thing from this right now, that generosity is not dependent on what we do or do not have. The call to generosity does not kick in when we reach a certain tax bracket. The call to generosity does not kick in when you get a better paying job or you get an inheritance. From this example, we are to be generous. We can be generous when we have a lot or when we have a little, or in this case, when they barely had anything. And God smiles down on this. He smiles down on giving out of what we have. He does not look at numbers. He does not look at how much we can do. He does not care about big, mo- big amounts, but big hearts. You know the story of the widow who came in Jesus is standing there and they see the offering being given and there are men who are giving tons and tons of money and then this woman, a widow, comes in and she gives, it says, just two copper coins, which was nothing, two pennies. And what did Jesus say about her? Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, she put all she had to live on. Generosity is not dependent on how much we do or do not have. Three, we're moving along. Generosity has no limits. Generosity has no limits. Second Corinthians 8, 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
Now verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Now I do not know why he said it, why he wrote it down like this. He says they gave of their means, but then he says, No, they gave more. I don't know why he wrote it down like that. It's almost as if he's saying it would have been okay if they had given according to their means. But they did not just do that. They went over and above. They went beyond their means. They went beyond it. You know, giving according to your means, it's like he's saying, is amazing. Giving according to your means, that's amazing. You're giving that for the church. Way to go. I love it. But I want you to know there is another level. I saw it with my own two eyes. There is a deeper, more joyful, more trustworthy level of generosity. There is a generosity that would seem crazy to anyone else, but I have seen it. I have seen a people that can give more than they can spare. And I just want you to think about living in that time and that place. It is not like living in America today. When we lose everything, there are social nets that catch us. There is a government that can support us when we are down on hard times. There was nothing like that back then. These men and women trusted God so deeply that they threw caution into the wind. And I just want to ask you, what would it look like if you took the limits off of your giving? What would happen if you said, I'm not going to go according to what the world says, what my financial planner says, what my parents say. Based on the grace of God in my life, I'm going to take the limits off. What would happen? I'm not saying that you must be totally unwise. But I am saying that it is possible that God is calling all of us to give at levels that the world and maybe even we would think is crazy. Generosity has no limits. For generosity comes from the overflow of joy. Generosity is the overflow of joy. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now listen, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in in the relief of the saints. I just want to ask this question about this point. Why did the Macedonians give where other churches were not? Especially the Corinthian church, when you compare them, why was one giving and one was having more trouble with it? Paul's answer is joy. His answer is that they were radical with their resources. They were generous with all that they had because of the joy, the abundance of joy in their hearts. Gordon MacDonald was the founding pastor of Grace Chapel. We were planted out of Grace Chapel. And he took a trip one time to, to West Africa, and he went to a worship service. And he was standing in the back, and he noticed that everyone had brought with them something. They brought with them something. They had noisy chickens, baskets of yams, ba- bags of eggs, bowls of what he calls Kasava. He turns to the translator that he had and he said, what are they doing? Why do they have all that stuff with them? And she said, just wait and see. And he writes, soon after the worship began, the moment came when everyone stood and poured into the aisles, singing, clapping, even shouting, 
the people began moving forward, each in turn bringing whatever he had brought to a space in the front. Then I got it. This was West African offering time. The chickens would help others get a tiny farm business started. The yams and the eggs given could be sold in the marketplace to help the needy. The kasafa would guarantee that someone who was hungry could eat. I was captivated, he said. I had never seen a joyful offering before. These were people truly like the Macedonians who were giving out of their extreme poverty. But they were not doing it from guilt or from duty, but from their joy. This language from Paul is so amazing. Verse 2 says that it was the overflow of the joy in their hearts that led to their giving. And then Paul says in verse 4 that that joy was so strong that they began begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging to help. Please, please can we give more? Why were they doing it? We put our money where our hearts are, don't we? Jesus says that where our hearts, there's where you're going to find your money. Where your money is, there's where your heart is. Where were they giving their money? Into the thing that made them the happiest. Helping other people. Bringing the gospel to other people. They were begging to help. And they saw this as a grace. That word favor. Let us have favor by taking in part of the relief of the saints. In the Greek, that is the word grace. Favor is grace. They they saw giving not only as a tremendous responsibility, but one of the highest gifts of God for themselves. God does not want us to be motivated by guilt. He does not want to be motivated in a way that we feel like we must do it. It's a drudgery. He does not want our giving to be painful or boring. He wants it to be exciting life-giving out of our joy. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this. I'm sure you've heard it. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. We do not give out of guilt. We do not give because we are forced to do so, to earn the favor with God. We give out of our joy. Now, why were they joyful? Why did they have joy in giving? That's what these next two points are about. Five, generosity is for the sake of others. In a sense, they were joyful because they were serving others. Verse three, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in what? The relief of the saints. So the the Macedonians are joyful in part because they were fully invested in the mission of God. They were fully given over to the reason for their giving, and that was for the relief of the saints, for the sake of others. They wanted to help other people. They were so other-centered that they wanted to give their money so that others could live. They were meeting the immediate needs of the suffering, food for the hungry, water for the thirsty. Generosity, they knew, is intended to bring shalom and healing and flourishing to our brothers and sisters, to the poor, to the widows, to the orphans. 
But they also knew that there was something else that they were taking part in. It was not just to fill bellies, but to save souls. Being generous makes the gospel go to all nations. Remember that Jerusalem was, in a sense, the epicenter of the Christian faith. It is where Jesus died, where he was raised to new life. It is where the church was gaining a foothold and launching out other churches and missionaries to the world. At least at that time, it was crucial to ground the gospel there in Jerusalem. And Paul and the Macedonians knew it, and so they gave. They gave not just to fill bellies, but to save souls. It made them so happy because they knew they were doing work not just for this life, but for the next life. Friends, if we are going to be happy in our giving, we must take as God's mission and make it our own. We must love the people Jesus has sent us to. We must be generous for the sake of the gospel. May we be caught up in what he is doing for the sake of others, for the sake of salvation. Six, generosity is our gain. Joy comes from seeing what we are involved in, the mission that we are on, but it's also a gain for us. And we've kind of been saying it all morning, but let's say it explicitly now. Generosity is for our gain. In other words, the Macedonians were not masochists. They were not giving like this because they liked pain. They were giving because giving for them was not a loss. Giving for them, giving their hard-earned resources and money, the little that they had, giving that away was not a loss for them. It was gain. Material goods poured out for others. They knew God would graciously supply more back to them. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So a farmer, he takes those seeds in his hand, right? A thousand, ten thousand seeds. He doesn't take them, look at them, and close his fist around them and put them back in his pocket. No, he takes them out and then he scatters them to the wind, into the soil where they may be deeply planted. He knows that those seeds will be destroyed, right? The seeds don't come back to him. But what comes back to him is worth far more. Jesus says, Paul says, if we fail to give our resources, we will never see a return. But if we are generous, we should expect incredible gain. We must expect that God will provide to us something more than we put in. Now here's the question right now. What is the more? What is the more that God is going to provide back to us? This is so important because so much of the church gets this wrong today. Flip on the TV, hear a preacher speak, and they will get this wrong. They will preach something called the health and wealth gospel. And it is no gospel at all. It is not good news. Because on the one hand, when you give your financial resources, you must know that you may not get back what you put in. This is not like work in the stock market. Your financial resources may not benefit you financially. That is not how God works. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. What is promised is true flourishing. What is promised is a deeper and happier love. Abiding love in God. God intends giving to be circular. 
He supplies, we give. He supplies more, we give more. That is the grace. That is the joy. That is the happiness. Here's how one person said it. If one gives in hope of attaining greater material, material prosperity, then one will harvest only spiritual poverty. Paul makes clear in what follows that God rewards generosity with material abundance to make it possible for people to be even more generous. Paul is going to go on to say, this is another, another point that I could have made, but I didn't. Paul is going to go on to say that giving could be your gift. Yes, everyone should give, but for some, giving will be your gift. And often you will know by how much money you have. How much money you have may show how great of a gift you will have so you can give it to others. But that is not losing. That is our gain. Seven, generosity comes from the love that we have in and for God. So that's the vision. We have joy because we are putting our resources into helping people. The vision is that we are, help, we are giving out our things, we are giving away our resources because it is coming back to us as a grace. But there's a final ground, a ground for our joy, and that is the grace of God. This is where we began and where we will end. Why did the Macedonians give? Why were they so radical with their resources? Because they were grounded in God's love. For them. 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 5. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the release, relief of the saints. Now, verse 5. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The Macedonian people loved the Lord. And they loved him because they knew him as the great provider. Before they gave anything, they had given themselves first to God. They had known him as the God who cares, as the God who loves, as the God who seeks and finds and brings back, the God who gives literally all things. So as I was writing this section of my sermon, I was working through this point. I was in Panera, and I looked over, and I saw a booth, and there was a, a grandmother, and she had her, looks like her little grandson with him, maybe three, four years old. Now, I have children, and I hold them tenderly when they let me, when they come to me and, and let me hold them, but there was something different about this. It was something that I don't know if I'd ever seen before. Maybe I was just overtaken by this, and understanding God's love for me, but as I watched, I watched the little boy melt into his grandmother's arms, and she just sat there holding as long as, as, long as he would let her. The Macedonian people knew the love of God for them. They had gone first to him, and they had received something that they had never received before, his grace his mercy, his comforting love, his sweet, generous, real love. They believed it, trusted it, and loved it. And when you find something like that, you do not hold it back for yourself. 
When you find a love like that, you do not keep it for yourself, but you give it for others. That is ultimately what our giving does. Our generosity is giving the love of God to the world. Generosity comes from the love that we have in and for God. Number eight, generosity is by grace. Now, something very specific happened. There was a very specific truth that they learned that totally changed them. It swept them up into this love that they could not deny. It revealed to them a generosity that they could not forget. It gave to them a gift that they could never have earned. And it poured over their church like a tidal wave. Friends, we must hear this. We must get this over and over again. We must preach it back into our hearts. This truth, this reality, this good news, this good news that will ruin us for the better, that will make us into givers the world has never seen. Friends, the pinnacle of grace and love was the death of the Son of God. Maybe my favorite verse in all the Bible, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We could spend all morning talking about this. We don't have time, though. So just let me give you the why and the how. Why this is what we need and why it is our model, how it is our model. The reason that we give is because Jesus gave everything to us, everything. He gave up his material wealth, his physical wealth, his spiritual wealth. He was poor, he was destroyed, he was condemned. Why? Because he loved us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame and the cross. See, Cranfield writes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ denotes the utterly undeserved, royally free, effective, unwearying, inexhaustible goodwill of God. Friends, when you give your money, when you write a check, when you click on that website, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see him giving his life for you. This is why you give. Revel in his grace for you. And understand that this is our model as well. As Tim Keller is fond of saying, Jesus did not tithe his blood. He did not just give 10% of his blood. In other words, we do not give without limits. We give until it hurts. And we give with joy in our hearts. Our pocketbooks, our bank accounts, our mutual funds, our possessions must be totally, completely informed and guided by the gospel. Generosity is by grace. Here's our last point. Generosity is deliberate. We made it all the way through. Generosity is deliberate. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So here's where we apply all this. Here's where we apply it. The main application, the undergirding application, is that you think about this. Paul goes out of his way to say, I am not trying to compel you to do something for my benefit. He does not want them to do this because he has said it. He wants them to go first to the Lord, thinking about their resources, about their money, and make a decision. 
between you and the Lord, maybe with the help of others, but mainly between you and the Lord, you much must give as you have decided in your heart. You must think about it deeply. You must make a decision. You must go after it. So just let me give you three things, three Ps, how you can put that into practice. First, make giving a percentage. Make giving a percentage. Tithing, that's right. We, we talk about tithes and offerings. That's a good starting place. It's not a law anymore, giving 10%, but it is a good place to begin. It is a good place to begin. And it's good because we need to give out of what we have, not just an amount, amount of money. If you think about Bill Gates, if he gives 1% of his money, how much is that? That is a ton of money. Way more than I will ever have in a thousand lifetimes. So you can't just go by the percentage. You can't just go by the amount. You must go by a percentage. Begin at 10%. If you have never given, maybe you need to work up to it. But I would, I would press you. Go home, think about it, pray about it, and say, what would happen if, if I did this? If I put my trust in the Lord and gave 10%, what would happen? Give a percentage to Make your giving progressive. You know, I missed one. That's too bad. I kind of did it, though. Giving, make giving a priority. That was the first one. Make giving a priority. Make giving a percentage. Let's just do the third one because we've got to keep on moving. Make giving progressive. Make giving progressive. So you start with 10%. Maybe you start with 5%. Do not stop there. Do not stop there. Once you have begun living contentedly at a certain percentage, Go up. Go crazy. Go radical. Now, you ask how radical? How much is enough? And I don't think that's the right question. C.S. Lewis said that you cannot settle how much you have to give, but you must go to the point where you're asking, how much can I? Let me read it to you. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are probably too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable Expenditure excludes them. Give deliberately. Before the Lord, Lord, not under compulsion, out of the joy of your heart. And let me just end this morning by saying I have seen that in this church. I've been here for over 10 years now, and I have seen the generous joy of our people. You have given so generously, so sacrificially, And I know that I can expect more in the future. I do want to encourage us, though, to end that I think that we have another gear and we must have another gear. Out of the grace that has been provided to us, I believe that there is more fruit yet to bear. And we should be so excited, eager to see it happen. Let's pray. God, I pray now that you would take our hearts and our minds to the communion table, but not off what we have just seen and witnessed in this Macedonian people. 
God, as we come to this table, oh, remind us again of your great generosity, of your great care for us, of everything you sacrificed to bring us life. God, I pray for those who who are today do not believe. I pray that they would believe this morning. Would you lead them to a place where they can give their hearts to you? Today, not tomorrow, not an hour from now. Today, now, may they give their hearts to you, O Lord. Show them again the generosity, your kindness in dying for their sins. And God, again, as you remind us of your gospel, may we go out as we have been nourished with your bread, with your wine, with your body, with your blood. May we go out and give it to others. We ask this, and we know that it must be by grace. We have a problem with money. We have a problem talking about money. You must get inside our hearts. Change us. Fill us with joy. May we be the people that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.